Welcome to the Joe Schmo Sports Show. Um, I'm your host. My name is Clint Webb. Alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Mr. Dominic Battistella. Hey, what's going on, And Clint? our producer and engineer, Mr. Andre Cameron. Uh, and you can find us on all of your major usual suspects when it comes to listening to podcasts. We got Apple Pod. We got Spotify. We got Stitcher. And uh, am I missing anything there? Uh, we got the YouTube channel. Well, yeah, yeah, we got the YouTube channel, J- uh, Joe Schmo Sports Show, and at J Schmo Sports on all of your social media platforms. Now let's get down to business. Today's guest is, uh, I guess you could say she's a legend. She has 294 disc golf tour wins. There's no guessing. She's a five-time world disc golf champion and, a little tidbit, she's also a Hall of Famer. So, Miss Elaine King, how are you today? I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited about doing this interview. I've been playing disc golf myself for 15 years, so the opportunity to get to have a conversation with you is a privilege. Thank you for being here. Yeah, Dominic's well, been thank pretty you for giddy. Asking me. Yeah, he's been pretty giddy over the last couple of weeks in in preparation for this. Yeah, so this is going to be great. Elaine, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, where to begin? I guess I stumbled upon disc golf as a result of marrying Eric Vandenberg way back in 1983, and he enjoyed throwing a disc around with his with his friends, and it was just your regular backyard pro model whammo frisbee Hmm. and the summer we were married he happened to notice a poster downtown toronto on just a post somewhere that advertised the toronto or no the canadian disc golf championships oh wow i've got to correct myself it was the canadian Hmm. frisbee disc championships i think it was because it was not just disc golf it was all the events Mm -hmm. And so Eric and I went, and he was expecting to see freestyle, because that's what he knew about Frisbee. But when we got there, they were playing disc golf on the Toronto Island disc golf course. And I certainly thought it was one of the strangest things I'd ever seen, especially when one fellow threw a roller, oh, which yeah. looked like it was something gone wrong, but, but actually it, it was very really intentional. <laughs> And Eric was so excited when he found this sport because it was a flying disc sport that you didn't have to have a partner of similar ability. So the next weekend, we took our backyard pro model discs out to the Toronto Island and started playing. And from there, it escalated into a hobby and then very soon we were fanatics and then after that we're totally integrated into disc golf and have barely have any friends outside disc golf. <laughs> it happens so quickly that's, doesn't it <laughs> that's the way it goes the game has evolved significantly from its origins uh, when you s- became aware of the game back in 83 was had the pole hole taken over as the standard target for disc golf or were there still the tonal poles and the saucers and 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 the other types of baskets we were fortunate in that there were two pole hole courses in 
the greater Toronto area, which was uh, pretty unusual considering how few courses there were around the world. But there definitely still were saucer courses, and I remember playing an event on a saucer course and trying to putt into those very strange-looking things. <laughs> I even played an event on ground baskets in oh, wow. Rochester. Baskets. I've never a ground basket, you've got just a stake in the ground, and then there's some chicken wire <laughs> around it. And so you're throwing at the ground. Interesting. The idea is maybe you hit the pole and the disc settles in the chicken wire. It's not um, something to slow it down just like, and catch it like the chains now. <laughs> Yes, that I believe was the invention of Jim Palmieri. I don't think it was very widespread, but it just shows you back in the days, pole holes were very expensive and extremely hard to come by. Mm. So people did what they could. Of course. People were innovative at the time. It was it was a brand new... Was it even considered a sport at the time? I know it, now it's one of the fastest growing sports in the country, but... Back then, it must have been looked at more like a game, or I think of cornhole or mm. something like that, as more of a, I, I don't know how to put it, uh, more... Lifestyle, a lifestyle, I think yeah, is yeah. what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, that's it was, it was Certainly, there were always competitive aspects, and there were always players who were very athletic and competitive, but I've got to say that the majority of people who participated in disc golf back then were not because they were sporting inclined it's they were drawn to the lifestyle it was very much an alternative sport extremely unwell known that's not a good way to put it but but people just didn't know about it unless you happened um, to spend a lot of time in a park that had these pole holes sure. the general public had knew nothing about it so i spent you know the first 10 to 15 years explaining what disc golf was and people puzzling, and I have to show them a picture <laughs> of a basket. So it, it was definitely a very alternative thing. So the people who participated in it l thought of themselves as, I guess, not cut out of the general mold of everyone. They were not people who wanted to play tennis or hockey. They were people who wanted to do something different. Mm, sure. Was it bigger in Canada than it was in the States at that point in 83? No. Um, very much. In 83, there were small pockets in various places in North America, not very much overseas. California was a hot spot. Cincinnati was a hot spot. That's, that's um, random. North Carolina became oh, a hot spot. Well, it became a hot spot once Innova established Innova East, but that didn't happen yet. At that point in 83, when I joined, was just before Innova invented the Eagle. Hmm. Oh, which wow. is, was later called the Arrow. Okay. So I, my first golf disc that I threw was a Midnight Flyer. So it was essentially an ultimate disc. Oh, wow. And I most certainly would have quit if uh, a beveled edge disc hadn't been invented mm. because my fingers are short and I found it very hard to throw this deep rim disc. Okay, so you but, you might have to for a lot of our listeners maybe yeah. have never seen a disc golf Me. disc. What is what does that mean to have a beveled edge disc? What it means is the edge of the frisbee is not a ninety degree angle that is very deep where you have to curl your fingers around it. It's a much narrower rim with kind of a V shape. And that provides a um, 
cleaner line. When you think about throwing a disc, the old style discs had probably about an inch of face that, that faced into the wind. Like but the beveled edge disc, it came to a point. Yeah. So you had this point facing the wind. So if you think of aerodynamics, yeah. of course, you want to have a, a small point facing the wind, and then you want a slope as the body of the item progresses. You think of cars. So the cars that go fastest are low to the ground, have a low profile, and then they sure. get higher mm -hmm. as you go backwards. Yeah. So think of the Frisbee like that. The beveled edge disc has this edge, and then it gets higher, mm. and that enables it to cut through the wind better. One of the things that I've found to be helpful in explaining to people that don't know anything about disc golf what a disc golf disc is, is to say it's not like a Frisbee, it's more like a discus, and that seems to connect a little bit better with them without having to you know, try to explain aer complex aerodynamics and stability of plastic and things like that to people because then you just lose them. Right? Well, well, tell me, Elaine, being the beginner here of this group, what do I need to start? Say I have a time to go out with somebody tomorrow to play around a disc golf for the first time. What do I need? So it would really help to have a golf disc but you could actually use any backyard Frisbee. If you just want to go and have fun, just pick up your Frisbee and go. If uh, it's a windy day, I would suggest luck, right? you try and get your hands on a golf disc. You can go into Dick's Sporting Goods. They have some. You can go into your local Play It Against Sports. Mm. They probably have some. You can order them on any number of online distributors. But I would say start with what we call a putter and a mid-range. I think that's all you should start with. Okay. It's bewildering now because there are thousands of discs that you could get. And many of them are meant for people who can throw them with a lot of speed and a lot of spin. Mm. Now, I'll tell but you, from, from me, the competitive side, I would never go out there with a Frisbee if I'm heading on a disc golf course, because I know that it would put me at a competitive disadvantage, especially for somebody like Dominic, and you can't see his disc golf bag, but he's got like, a, I would assume it doesn't rival yours, but he's probably got 30 discs in his at the moment. And so it's like, I have mine. Actually, I was at a white elephant party here and got the prize of a disc golf bag and it had a driver a mid-range and a putter that's what that's, it has in it it had the lane it had the basic beginner set from innova with the leopard the shark and the avr yeah so that's what i got <laughs> yeah it depends if you're going out just with your kids mm -hmm. with your mother it really doesn't matter what you bring you right. just you go and have fun you you treat it like mini golf now when you're going out with dominic that's right. a, that's a whole different thing it is right? indeed. okay there's two men playing sports it, there's a whole different level of testosterone involved in that activity you're not you're not uh, you're not entirely wrong there <laughs> and, okay so one more question just to make sure because to let the lay person know i know that golf takes about three to five hours right depending on your skill level and how many people are in front of you how long should the average round take? And I, I know that when Dominic and I went out, we did 21, 27 holes. No, Is, it wasn't. It was, was it 21? It, we went to Valley Springs. Right. So we did go to Valley Springs. A couple extra holes. Yeah. And so it took us, what, two hours? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. So is that is that about average? Yeah, I would say for beginners, one and a half to two hours should be plenty, depending if you pick a beginner-friendly course 
or if you pick a course that's longer, it might take you longer to navigate it. But yeah, one one and a half to two hours should be plenty of time to have a lot of fun together and maybe throw the occasional extra shot uh, <laughs> if you feel inclined to. That um, never happens, hey, ever. My foot wedge has always been my best club in my bag, Elaine, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I can definitely get down with an extra shot or two. We, we started off getting into how you got into disc golf. How did you transition from being a regular player into competing in professional events? Okay, let me tell you, back then there were not the plethora of divisions that there are currently. Okay. There was a division called amateur. There was a division called pro. There was a division called women. And occasionally you went to a tournament where there was a division called masters. Hmm. And that's pretty much all there was unless you went to the world championships okay. where they had more senior age divisions. But amateurs were just amateurs. There was one division called amateur and people progressed pretty quickly out of the amateur division. And most players were what we would call MPO. Okay. MPO meaning male pro open. And then what is women's professional? What is the designation for that division? That's FPO. FPO. Female, female professional. Okay. You progressed out of amateur relatively quickly then. and No. Okay. I was in a division called women. Okay. So there wasn't... There was just women. There was just no women. professional you were either, amateur You were either a guy and okay. you got to play amateur or pro. Okay. Or you were a woman, a woman and you got to play women. <laughs> I, 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 I apologize. I didn't understand that that was... <laughs> I didn't realize that there wasn't a distinction there. So when you play in the women's division then at that time, was it all professional then or was there no professional level how does that work even if you were in what was called a pro division and the women's division was considered pro you got very small amounts of money if you placed high on the men's side you got again very small amounts of money if you placed high mm, for right. the amateur divisions i'm just trying to remember i, I there might have been a payout in plastic in discs but back then the entry fees were extremely low mm, sure and there were not any particular standards about how much tournament directors had to give back, etc. Tournaments didn't really have tiers. They were just tournaments. So it was very small. It was very informal. Most people who played were between the ages of 20 and 30. Okay. And it, it was just an, a young alternative sport. So... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask, when was there a transition that you noticed from that level of engagement to where it you started to see an increase in number of divisions and a more professionalized set of players who were competing for cash payouts and whatnot, particularly in the women's professional side? Well, quite honestly, it was the 2000s before there were any significant number of women who would consider playing disc golf for money, even a supplemental income. I, th I think it was into 2000s before there were touring women. And there really weren't any touring men till the late 90s. 
it just it was just too small. Now you had a lot of weekend warriors. You'd occasionally have some players who would take a summer off, save up their money, and go around and play a lot of disc golf tournaments. But the prize money really wasn't all that high. Hmm. So what I was I wanted to ask because you started playing in '83. That's when you got introduced to the game. That's what you say. Okay. And so you turned pro in 85. Is that right? I started entering competitions. You started entering competitions in 85. Because that's when the PDGA on the website, it starts to track everything is what it looks like. And 86, you got your first win and your second. Flats Classic, it said you had your first win in May of 86. So three years, maybe not even three years since you started, once you started playing. And you won your first two tournaments. That's pretty incredible. Like to compete at that level in just two and a half, three years. So what, like how much did you practice? What did you, what was your training like to, to start doing this? We were living in an apartment at the time. We did not have our own pole hole. Mm. So the, the training was going outside, finding a park to throw some discs around in without hitting anyone in downtown Toronto, (laughs) which was tough. But mostly my husband and I on the weekends, we'd go out and, you know, play a a couple of rounds either on the Toronto Island or the Centennial Park course. Mm. And that's pretty much all you could do. Well, that is just incredible to me because after looking at 86 and then you won three tournaments in 86, or sorry, you had three tournaments in 86 you won seven out of 12 tournaments in 87. And then 89, you really dominated. You won eight of 10. And then I don't know what happened in 91. Was anybody else even playing? Because you you won every single event in 91, including the world championship, your first world championship. So what was that season like? And it would seem like you were the top, the best of the best, and nobody could even touch you. I just... I seem to get the hang of it, I guess. (laughs) I would Um, say so. (laughs) She was in the zone. There is something about that. Physically, I was in a good age. There is something about getting your muscles seasoned as well. And especially for women who don't necessarily have all the muscles in their arms in the right places, it, it takes a while to get the muscle strength and endurance. I think I started playing soccer, which mm. really helped my balance yeah. and leg strength, which translated into my throw. And it, yeah, it was a great season. I had a lot of fun. I That's the first time Eric and I lived in the US. Mm. So I was living uh, in the Detroit area. Okay. In ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, fantastic courses in Michigan too. Yeah, it's, it's what is what's the feeling like like when you go out there and you're not going to be beat because you're that was in the same era as Jordan, so you were the you were the Michael Jordan of women's disc golf. And how it's like you were shooting and nothing was missing, so it's just kind of nuts. But I, I have a question about that. Nineteen ninety, you only played three tournaments. What what was going on in nineteen ninety? Between eighty nine and ninety, I was living in Sweden. Mm. That makes a lot more sense now. And so the Swedish tournaments have not yet been entered into the PDGA database. There's an ongoing project to research and discover tournament results from that are only on paper. That's really cool. Wow. Okay. Is that the same for all international like tournaments are not with PDGA? Yeah. So the PDGA records got really very much better when they got computer systems, when they were paper systems. A number of things happened. The PDGA head office moved from place to place. There were periods where records just got lost. That's frustrating. 
And yeah, you can see on a lot of players who've been around for a long time, there's a little star mm. against the number of wins and the little asterisk indicates that not all results may be available. So then how many do we add to your 294, Elaine? I have no idea. Is, is it, are we talking over 300 here? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> good. good. All right. So we'll just put you for 300 then. How about that? It's, it's funny. It's looking at, as you said, it, early on, there wasn't a lot of prize money. And I, just, I still don't think there's a ton of prize money in professional disc golf, just looking at the payouts. But over the course of your career, according to the PDGA, your PDGA page says you've earned over 123000 in tournament winnings over the course of that time. That's considering how many tournaments that you had to win or place to get there and how early your career started, there must have been almost nothing at the beginning. What did winning a tournament look like as far as payouts for professionals in the 80s and even the 90s compared to what they are today? The payouts were lower, but the amounts of money were lower too. Sure. You didn't, it, the entry fees were low. Okay. So that was one thing. If you're paying 20 or $25 to enter a tournament versus today where you're paying often 75 to 125 for an average tournament. That, and that doesn't, know, I was going to say, that doesn't include the, the national tour tournaments or the majors either where the payouts are quite a bit larger, right? But again, the entry fees are more like 250 mm, Sure. Now, what are the sponsorships like on the disc golf tour nowadays? That's something that's changed quite significantly over the years. And I think it was Discraft that first had the concept of a disc golf team, okay. which they introduced in about 91. There was a number of players who started touring for the summer. So they'd quit their job, save up a bunch of money, pack in a van and travel around. <laughs> and the like PGA was trying to get a little bit of a, a sensible tour schedule, but it was still not very well developed. And so Discraft started marketing a disc golf team. And as the years progressed, the other manufacturers followed suit because that seemed to be something very popular. But honestly, it wasn't until the advent of the internet and social media, along with the introduction of more disc golf manufacturers that the, the number of team members started to really increase mm. and they started having different tiers of teams including ambassadors whose job is to promote the sport to mm. teach to run clinics teach at camps hold small tournaments in addition to all the different levels of players right up into the elite level and there's different compensations at the different levels so if you're looking at elite athletes, they'll have an individual contract. If you're looking at top-tier athletes, there's standard payouts that the manufacturers will offer. But players make so much by their winnings from the tournament. There'll be bonuses from the manufacturers. And then players may have a tour series disc that they sell and mm -hmm. get a certain amount of income for that. And then some players also are sales representatives and sell some product and there's various things players can do to earn money to make it not just about the tournament winnings but other sources of income as well it seems like now certain players have gotten to the point where they have their own branding they're representing multiple different 
companies. So you know, you see not just the 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 disc manufacturers, but then you also see clothing and and like Grip Six I see out there, and Bushnell's gotten into the game in addition to all the other disc manufacturers. I think it was it not 2020 where Paul Macbeth signed the biggest sponsorship deal with any disc golf manufacturer with Discraft in this 10-year, $10 million deal. Is that is that going to be a breakthrough for professional disc golf in the sport to see that kind of money going towards the top-level top players? There's no doubt that Discraft's contract with Macbeth, which started out as the four-year $1 million, and was just recently announced as 10-year, 10 million. That that was a massive Mm. up in the ante. When you're playing poker and someone (laughs) suddenly puts all their chips in the pot, like things have changed. So yeah, things have changed. And I'm sure a lot of the very elite players went back to their sponsor and had a, a long talk with them. I just see that the sport has reached that turning point and it's not just because of one contract from one player what we're seeing is an explosion of people who are playing the sport which has created an explosion of people who are watching the sport which creates a real industry for the Mm -hmm. joe mezzas and the disc golf guys and the gk pro and these companies that go and film and their product is the disc golf media that is becoming an actual industry now. Mm-hmm. Disc Golf Network, Disc Golf Pro Tour, that's big stuff. Yeah, you you yourself are now a commentator for Disc Golf Network, are you not? Yes, uh, this is going to be my first year awesome. doing live commentary. Oh. I've not had the opportunity to do to date, but in a couple months I'll be going live and hopefully not running out of things to say as the sure. tournament drags on and on. Are you nervous? No, I'm not nervous. I, I do need to prepare. I, I'm mindful I need to do research. I have to have lists of things to say when, you know, the topic topics of conversation die. I'm it's watching a- um, what people are saying. I'm asking a lot of people, what do you like, what, what do you not like about the commentary? Yeah, sure. I mean, I and see- then we can look at sports like ball golf, where it's an even longer period that you need to do commentary over. Take some from the baseball guys because they have the longest, like they have the most dead air from what I understand of anybody to fill because baseball is such a slow sport. And so the color guys on there have to be like crazy on point when it comes to their knowledge. It's, it seems that the guys on Joe Mez, whether it's a Yulbari or Jeremy Colling, and they seem to have a great interaction because they're friends on and off the course, so they utilize that uh, interaction mm. to fill the dead time. That always helps. Huh? Yeah, it does. <laughs> but it 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 seems like you would have to do a lot of studying on each individual player, what they carry in their bag, yep. who their sponsorship is, and what they like to throw in particular situations. Do you think that you're going to have to watch a lot of, of tape on a lot of the competitors? in order to do the live commentary as opposed to the the post-recording commentary? The thing with live and players is that they want to know what model of disc the player is thrown. So in order to accomplish that, it's a matter of um, getting with the people who are going to be on the card that you're providing commentary, getting them to photograph the discs in their bag and tell you what they are, and 
then as a commentator, I'll have to be watching. Is it a drive? Is it an approach? And figure out which disc they're throwing. And sure. generally, you have a pretty good um, probability of knowing what they are throwing. And players do rotate discs out of their bag. Just because you threw that disc last week and the week before, it doesn't mean that's the disc you'll be mm-hmm. throwing this coming weekend. So it's a matter of getting with the, the player's and getting them to work with you so that you can give good live commentary. Sure. And so it's helpful that I know the women and they know me. And so I'm hoping that will be a pretty easy process to get that information. Now, uh, in that coverage, are you covering just the lead card? Or will you be covering all of the action going on in the entire tournament? I'm going to do what I'm told. <laughs> That's a great That's answer. A, That's a fair point. <laughs> so, you know, from a spectator standpoint, I would say what disc they're throwing is definitely the number one thing that I would say. When I'm watching a golf tournament, I want to know what they're hitting because it's always, oh, they're throwing a driver or I'm, I'm hitting a driver and they're hitting a seven iron as far as I'm hitting a driver. And that's when Dominic and I went out and played. He was like, here, I'm throwing a putter from 300 feet and I'm sitting there not throwing a putter. And so it's just like, how do you, are you going to be like saying what they're throwing as far as uh, the kind of disc they're throwing as well as the manufacturer? Is that something you're going to focus on as well? Oh, yeah. All I'll be doing is looking up the characteristics of the disc, Mm -hmm. the four numbers. So discs, I'll get it wrong, there's glide and fade and speed and... Turn. Something or else. Yeah. Yeah, turn. So there are four numbers assigned to each disc. Once I have the information on what disc the player is throwing, I'll look up and see Mm. what those numbers are and then we can explain to people. And as you're saying, Clint, just because Dominic throws a putter, that doesn't mean that's the right disc for right. you. No, absolutely. And actually, Clint, to be fair, it doesn't mean it's the right disc for me that's, either. That's, that's fair. I could be that's making fair, a huge mistake. <laughs> when we're able well, to remember, get out there with Elaine, she'll tell you if you're making a mistake or not. So we'll look forward to that. Good point. I remember playing around with Paige Bierkus at Delaware. And she would throw and I would throw and... Our discs would land within 10 feet of each other for most of this tournament. She was throwing a putter, and I was throwing a driver. (laughs) So there you go. Well, speaking of throwing long distances, one of my favorite things I think I've ever seen disc golf online was a clip of you from 2003 Worlds. And you were teeing off, and you threw this thing. I don't eight hundred plus feet and hit metal, and you cleared out the entire group in front of you. They were running for their lives. That was what, funny. That that was funny. Yeah. Tell us what you know. What what happened there? Okay, so we were playing in Flagstaff, Arizona, okay. at the Snowball Course. So people who ski know that. Snowball at Flagstaff, Arizona, is a ski hill, and it's a pretty big ski mm-hmm. hill. We had set up a temporary disc golf course there. So you threw uphill for 16 holes, oh, and you threw downhill for two holes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so this was the very last hole, hole 18, and it was something like 850 feet um, down a black diamond slope. Okay. So I had been practicing this, and it's 850 feet, so I was throwing my drivers, and they were just bailing out hard to the left. Sure. And so there was a few of the top pro guys there, and they said, no, no, Elaine, 
you got to throw a mid-range. They said, when you're that high up, your disc picks up so much speed that a driver is just going to go hyzer on you. So throw a mid-range. So I thought, okay, we'll try it. So I threw a mid-range, and yeah, it was definitely more successful <laughs> at going farther, straighter. Well, sure. Yes. Yeah. So when it, yes. So when it came to showtime, I just got the, the perfect drive off. So I had to keep it as low as I dared to the hill in front of me, because then the next hill was a much steeper slope. And I threw an understable mid-range. It was an MRV, which is a disc that's now out of production. And it was beat up. And it just carried and it just went straight for a very long time and it was getting to I couldn't see it hardly anymore because it was just it had been rainy and it was a little bit misty and so just I could just barely see it break and then it seemed to change direction I thought okay it seems to have hit the ground down there somewhere you couldn't see the basket oh wow it was just too far away could you couldn't see the people could you hear it hit the metal no, couldn't hear anything. Oh, I'm, wow. I'm 850 feet up a ski hill. Well, right. Did, so I got to ask, there's penalties for throwing too close to the group in front of you. Did you even anticipate that you were going to be that close to the group that was playing ahead of you? There were spotters that told us when to throw. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so they didn't anticipate you getting that close to the group in front of you. Well, yeah, no, nobody was getting that far because the disc would turn off left. Because okay. everybody else you was know, using a driver um, and you were not? Unless you, I guess, got bold enough to throw it low enough and you had a disc that was understable enough and you threw it just right and the wind was right. And a lot of things can happen mm -hmm. as a disc is flying 850 feet down. Sure. I know I talked to one guy who actually threw a shot just like mine, but missed the basket. And he was then down at the bottom Oof. of the ski hill. Ooh, wow. And he said it took him about three throws to get back up oh, geez. to where the basket Glad was. Glad you didn't miss that one. Um, what, but, was, what was the par but, on that? Yeah, hill? I mean, just, oh, gosh, I, I don't know. We, we didn't pay as much attention to par back then. I know okay. par is a big thing now. It was just the total number of shots just an accumulation you just you just threw everything's a three whatever yeah. <laughs> everything's a three 850 foot three part three yeah, that's that's nice my my favorite part of that is after the tournament john hoke was interviewing juliana Corver and <laughs> asked her about your shot and she had this little like <laughs> flicker of an eye roll like oh man <laughs> it was so funny it was it, it gave us a little giggle that's for sure <laughs> it definitely did was she your biggest rival let me think, 2003, no. Des Redding, I think, she was starting to really turn it on in 2003. Sure. Yeah, I didn't read that name. Both both she and, and, and Juliana were, had both won several. At, at that time, I think Juliana Corver had won uh, either four or that's, even that's five cool. world championships, and that's before um, Des had won any, at least, worlds at the time. So Juliana did win. In yeah. 2003. And second place was Des Redding. Yeah. And third place was Nadine Cosgrove. Oh, wow. So you didn't... You didn't and I need, came in sixth. You came in sixth. Okay, but you had the shot of the tournament, right? Yes. The shot heard around the world. <laughs> We're still watching that. Yeah, that's, that, that's... I say to people, I threw a good shot once. Yeah. You threw a good shot once. <laughs> I say that a lot when I'm on the golf course. Like, I hit a good shot once. <laughs> I caught a fish. This, this big, big right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So you you were previously on Team Discraft, correct? Correct. Okay. So one of the people that I was fortunate enough to meet early on when I was learning how to play disc golf currently on the Elite Team Discraft is, gosh, why am I having trouble remembering? Uh, now? Well, because, you're old. But, no, it's because okay. I, I was about to say is that Michael Johansson. I, I was fortunate enough to play many rounds with him because we had common friends down in Charlotte when I lived down there. But in 2017, you left Team Discraft and, and w- tell us what happened there. It was time. A few things had happened. So Valerie Jenkins had a really big move leaving Innova, coming to Discraft. And one of the things she very publicly cited was the fact that although the men were getting signature discs, they were not offering signature discs to any women. Mm. Okay. And they told Val that she needed to win four world championships mm. to earn that honor. And as a result of that, and I'm sure a few other things as well, Val decided to come to Discraft. And Discraft immediately awarded her a special tour stamp disc. Mm. And along with Michael Joe, Tim Barham, and I'm just trying to remember who else. Anyhow, there was a few guys and Val. And they told me that maybe if I tried hard, I could earn one next year. Oh, wow. So, I'm going to have so you that, check my resume. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was actually the end, although I didn't realize it at the time. Okay. I, I had a very deep personal connection with Discraft because Jim Kenner and Gail McCall were very good friends of myself and Eric. And Gail taught me how to compete. Other people taught me how to throw, but she coached me on competition. And I learned a lot from Gail. Mm. And she was always a very good friend and very strong supporter and mentor to me. And Gail and Jim, we had this emotional connection. And I never even thought of leaving Discraft, I guess, for so many years because of that. But just that The January before all this came down, Gail tragically died, Mm. so I didn't have that connection, and Jim had stepped right back from the business, and uh, during that summer of 2017, I was thinking to myself, suddenly for the first time, like, why am I at Discraft? Like, what? Why? And I finally concluded that all the things that kept me loyal to Discraft, they they just weren't in place anymore. Sure. when I was back winning world championships, Jim would always be there. He'd always be there at the world champs. He'd shake my hand and he'd buy me dinner. And there wasn't a lot of money being shared around. There weren't tour discs and signature discs back then. I knew Jim appreciated me. And just that just wasn't in place anymore. So it was time. It was just time for me to leave and have a new start and find a, a company where I could benefit them and they could benefit me. Now, did you immediately leave Discraft to go to another company as a sp- uh, having a sponsor, or did you have a time period where you were looking for a new sponsorship? So what happened is I decided to leave, and I had no agenda. And after I won the Master Worlds in 2017, I had some discussions leading up to that, and I said, okay, it's I'm going to... Thank you very much for all the years of support, but I think it's time to part company. 
So I did that. And then I, I had fun just throwing discs. I could throw anything I wanted to. It was, it was very bewildering. It's just like the new player today. It's like, here's 1,500 discs. Throw whatever you like. Oh, no it's like, kidding. ah, where do I start? Stopping so I, I just went to the boxes of discs I had because you get CTPs, you get tournaments with your players packs. So I started digging through that and just throwing discs. And one of the discs I threw was the Wave. Okay. And so uh, I was at the time I was posting all the discs that I threw and what I liked and the ones that I thought were interesting. And so then Steve Holloway from MVP said, oh, you like the Wave. Mm. Let's talk. Well, we had some discussions and he sent me some discs to try out and I tried them out and we discussed them again. And then he sent me some more and I tried those out. And meanwhile, I had a number of discussions with a number of manufacturers. But in the end, it really seemed like MVP was the right fit for me. And I'm really happy I went with them because I'm having a lot of fun with the discs. I can see the gyroscopic effect going farther. Everyone has told me, Elaine, you're throwing farther. Sure. Yeah. It's, it, now, you're going to have to explain uh, what the gyroscopic effect means. Yeah. What is that and how is it unique to uh, MVP discs? Okay, so the gyroscopic effect can is most pronounced with discs that have more weight on the rim than they do in the inside. Okay. And the more of a weight difference there is in the rim versus the inner, it's the gyroscopic event effect. And so you can there's gyroscopes that you can buy, and what happens is like you end up spinning them. And they have this almost perpetual motion just because of the way the laws of physics work. If you get something that's heavy going in a circle, it tends to going in a circle, and yep. it only slows down because of resistance. So the MVP discs are two-piece discs. So the, the MVP ones have a black rim, and they also have a product line called Axiom, and they've got different colors of rims. But in both cases, the plastic in the rim is more dense. Okay. Than the plastic in the flight plate. So there's so, so there's this means the, two different polymers is what you're saying of plastic. Yeah. Okay. Yes, two different types of plastic, and other companies have used this effect. Innova has the Blizzard discs where they have lots of micro bubbles in the flight plate, and so that also has a gyroscopic effect because the flight plate is lighter than the rim. Okay. And you see the discs that have really chunky, beefy rims that are very wide. Again, the more weight you have along the rim, the more of a gyroscopic effect you get. Sure. The key, though, is to get that gyroscopic event effect, but with flight characteristics that don't make that disc super beefy stable. Okay. So a lot of the discs that fly farthest in the right hands, of course, are because it's got a really fat rim that has a lot of weight. It's got a thin flight plate. And if you can throw it at 1,000 miles an hour, if you can throw it with a lot of spin and a lot of speed, it gets that gyroscopic effect going and the disc will fly farther. The beauty of MVP discs is they accomplish this by a different type of plastic. So you don't need to be able to throw it with as much arm speed to get the benefits I got you. of the gyroscopic event. So, for example, I can throw my Atom putter way farther than I could throw any other putter. Okay. Excellent. And it, 
and it, there's one other, I believe, product line with MVP, right? You mentioned Axiom, MVP. What else do they have? And, and they've got Streamline. So okay. Streamline is just your typical one-piece disc. Okay. So they don't have the, the two-tonal plastic. They're not going for the gyroscopic nope, effect. No, nope. they're just injection molded, just one type of plastic. So, and, you're, so you're saying you know, it just goes further. Those are also good to, to fill in certain gaps sure. in the disc line. So you mentioned you didn't get a tour signature disc with with Discraft with your transition to MVP. Did do you have a signature disc there? Yes, so that was one of the things that I liked about MVP is they started talking immediately about a signature disc. But I waited for more than a year after I joined MVP before I chose what disc I wanted to be, my signature disc, because MVP had not had any signature discs to that point. So I was going to be the first. And I, I had not had one, so I wanted to make sure it was a disc that I really and truly liked. And so I chose the fission photon. So back to our, our physics conversation here about gyroscopic event effect, the photon, not only it's a two-piece disc with the um, more dense plastic around the rim, but the plastic in the flight plate has micro-bubbles in it. So oh, wow. it's super light. Okay. So it has a, an enhanced gyroscopic effect. And so it, when I really get some good spin and speed on that disc, it just floats forever. Would that be considered a an understable or overstable disc? In my hands, it's got pretty good stability. For the top guys, the Fission Photon, they'd probably consider it to be neutral to perhaps even slightly understable. But MVP has moved their injection molding from out-of-house to in-house, and the in-house ones they have are more stable. Mm now that they've been manufacturing it in their own plant. So I think the Fission Photon is actually a really good disc for a wide variety of players. And so it's been, you know, a really good seller for them. So, Elaine, I'm going to step back a little bit and and ask a, a more of a beginner question for people who are uninitiated to disc golf. Can you explain what stability means in a disc? Okay. So stability is the tendency of the disc to fall left if you're a right-hand backhand player. Okay. So let's assume you're a right-hand backhand. Most beginners find they throw the disc and it goes left. And some discs go left hard and fast. Some discs go straight for a while and then they go left. Okay. The fact that they go left is because when the disc loses its rotation... It, it falls in, let's see, opposite the direction of spin. Okay. It's physics. I, I can't <laughs> avoid it. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so if a disc is understable, what that means is it's shaped such that the disc tends to travel in the direction of its spin. So if your right-hand backhand player and you snap the disc out of your hand and then it veers off to the right... That is an understable disc. So does that mean that disc is, it probably has more loft and lift in its characteristics? So it's less flat and it, it creates more force underneath as a, like a Bernoulli's principle almost. So almost like you're throwing a Not, disc into a headwind. 
Not necessarily. Okay. Some understable discs are meant to be thrown by someone who doesn't have a lot of spin. Okay. So a lot of, if you're a beginner player, if you haven't figured out how to get your wrist snap and arm speed, you'll definitely want to be throwing understable discs. And they'll <laughs> prevent everything from going short left on you. Sure. But if you had an experienced player that threw one of those dis discs that was designed to be understable at low speed, it's gonna be a they roller. would find that the disc <laughs> would just roll over it. Like it would come out of your hand and it would start doing a roll. I've done that before. Almost immediately. No, you haven't. So the loft... <laughs> has to do with um, often the domier shaped discs have more loft and it, it depends on the the speed that the air is traveling over the top of the disc versus under the disc gotcha. it sounds like it worked pretty well because last weekend you won so they, they, seem, they seem to be going pretty well right I did it was more of a matter of avoiding the trees as many trees as possible <laughs> I try to tell myself that all the time that's when it you're playing ball work. golf. That's true. <laughs> very, very true. So, Elaine, you keep mentioning physics, and I understand you're also a PhD. What do you have your PhD in? Physics? Chemistry. Oh, chemistry. Well, so you science. know all about what's going into the plastics is what you're saying. Absolutely. Polymers. Polymers are our friends. Better living through chemistry. Yeah. So what, what actually brought you to Durham? It was a job with a pharmaceutical company. Okay, excellent. So I was working in Toronto for the, the pharma company, and there was an opportunity to go to the U.S. head office, which was in the Research RGB, Triangle Park sure. area. We decided to jump on it. It's not a bad part of the world if you no. play disc golf, that's yeah, for sure. It it's, I have, I'd have to imagine it's a lot warmer here more, more often than oh, Toronto. Oh, it's a lot warmer. Yeah, yeah. one of my... It's, one of my best friends actually works for a huge pharma company in RTP, so I wonder if you guys work for the same company. <clears throat> uh, I, I have a question, though. Dominic and I were talking about this off-air before you came on. You were asked about coverage for disc golf, and you said it's not as convenient for big media to cover the sports as other sports. So what needs to change in order for that to happen? To get live coverage like yeah. you do... Because you know, right, golf tournaments. Like right now, you see all the highlights on the SportsCenter app, for example. So they'll put all the best shots. You'll see like a montage of the best shots on the sport on the SportsCenter app. And all these things they feed out through social media and whatnot. But you don't see them on... You have to... ESPN. Yeah, it's a, it's a streaming platform that you have to watch them on. So what needs to happen for an ESPN or a Fox or a CBS or something like that to cover disc golf? So what's the critical mass? Oh, we need millions and millions of viewers. Yeah. How do you get that? Realistic. How do you get that? We're getting it right now. Yeah. So first of all, we need more people playing disc golf because the more people who play it, the more people will be interested in mm -hmm. watching it. Okay. So what do you, how do you get kids and into more it? People will, there's a lot of initiatives you can take. You can start with kids. It's interesting. Back in the 80s when I was on the PDGA Board of Directors, the prevailing thought was... Disc golf was not a sport for kids because 
kid's attention span was too short <laughs> Tell for me a game about it. that you're playing for an hour and a half to two hours. Have you ever tried to do any one thing with your kid for an hour and a half to two hours? That, that's tough. But what sport doesn't la- like baseball last for a couple hours or football last for a couple hours or golf last for an infinite amount of time? It's, that's funny. I can't get my 13-year-old to sit down with me to watch a football game, but he'll go out and throw a round of disc golf yeah. with me. Yeah. In fact, the first time he went out, I took my son with me. Yeah, and he good whooped, times. He, he whooped your butt. Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> and I was okay with it. It's my first time. <laughs> what? So getting kids, I, what we're seeing is that children do love it. You need to get a course that's appropriate to the age yeah, sure. of the child, f- for sure. But what we're seeing even more is older adults, mm. like the sport. Yeah. So if you think when you're an adult... How many sports are available for you to play? Mm. We well, can play ball golf, which is expensive. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what else can you play? Tennis, I mean, really, what else ball, can you play as an adult? Pick yeah. up basketball, maybe? No. Not, well, you're going to break a bone. Well, I'll tell you, I played tennis on Saturday, and I've been sore for three for two days. So I don't know if I was... Okay, so there, tennis, badminton, those yeah. are great sports. Sure. But you need to find a partner, like a player of similar ability. Yeah, that's the tough part. there's a player that's way better than you or, or much less skilled, it's just not the same. It's frustrating, yeah. But disc golf, you can go out with people who are way better than you. People who are absolute rank beginners, and you can all have a great time. Mm. It's not You're not likely to have injuries due to falling or getting hit. Any injuries you might have are most likely repetitive strain. Like a twisting of the ankle for stepping over roots or rocks or whatever on the course. Straining your shoulder or your forearm after throwing three rounds in a weekend. (laughs) Elaine, a funny story. Uh, Dre, our producer, Dominic tried to show him how to throw a disc off out here in his yard last week. He hit the neighbor's house. And he hit the neighbor's house. (laughs) And the neighbor's house was, I don't know, 20 yards away. So it was was, to the far right, by the way. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> One of the things that I think is interesting about disc golf is that it's really approachable, right? Mm-hmm. So like you were saying, you don't need a lot of complicated equipment to start playing. You can go to any park that has a course and play for free. So there's not a large financial output. And people who are experienced at playing disc golf, I've it's almost universal, are willing to stop and help and play with people who are new, introduce them to the sport and give them some tips and help them get better. When I started, like I mentioned, I played a lot of rounds with Michael Johansson and he taught me a lot of things. Actually, recently I met you on a course, you were playing with your husband and a couple of other folks and my fiance, who's a beginner, you stopped and gave her some tips. And it was just the highlight of are weak and it's thank you for that by the way that was a lot of fun but it just goes to show that people who are involved in the sport even top level professionals are extremely approachable and helpful and want to be ambassadors for disc golf yeah the sport is still small enough that we feel like we're a small community and we need to help each other and if you play disc golf you can move anywhere and some people are apprehensive about moving and making friends. But when you play disc golf, like you have no worries. You can move anywhere. Certainly anywhere in North America, it's getting to be anywhere in the world. And you have a built-in community of friends because all you have to do is go 
show up at the course, join the local club, and those people will be your friends. So I have, I have something I read that was interesting. So you lived in Sweden. We covered that already. You said your husband is a course collector, right? So you yes. playing, I would assume, thousands of courses in your disc golf playing days. What is your favorite course, either specific course or country to play in? Because I know you said you want to go back to play in some courses back there. So what's your favorite one that you've ever played? Oh, boy, that is such a hard question. Some people have favorite courses, but I find it very difficult to name one course that's my favorite. Maybe one that um, was more scenic than uh, others? Uh, one, I'll give you this. I'd say my most recent course that is on my favorite list is Idlewild okay. in Kentucky. And it's a course that's used for one of the Disc Golf Pro Tour events. And it is a very tough, challenging course. It's like the tougher the course, the more I like it, as long as it's tough but well-designed. Mm. So it's a course that you need to place your shots. And if you place your shots, you can score well. And if you don't place your shots, you'll be punished. Have you ever thought about designing a course? I don't think that's my calling. There are people who can wander through the woods and imagine holes. And when I wander through the woods, I see a lot of trees. <laughs> so, so, like in your nightmares, so right? I, <laughs> it's like Blair Witch. <laughs> that's a trick. No, I don't feel like course designing is my thing. I'm involved in the organization, so I'm I'm on the PDJ board of directors. I'm heading up the PDJ Women's Committee for the moment, and I have been involved in getting the PDJ Medical Committee formed and active. So I, I feel like that's where my contributions lie. You have definitely been a great teacher and mentor for bringing women into the game of disc golf. And every week when I go out to the, our local courses here, I see more and more women playing. Are there special women's events or is there you know, something going on in the community that we need to know about that we can share with women that's coming up that, that you have planned or had a part in arranging? Yes, every two years we hold what's called the Women's Global Event. And this concept was developed by Valerie Jenkins, who envisioned women all around the world playing disc golf on one weekend per year. And that would be the weekend almost reserved for women playing disc golf. And the weekend chosen is the Mother's Day weekend in North America. Oh, wow. Okay. And back when it started in 2012, if you looked at the disc golf calendar throughout the year, you'd notice that Mother's Day weekend, there were almost no tournaments because mm. all the guys were visiting their mother. And in 2012, we started having the women's global event and getting women to play at their local course. And then the scores would be tallied. And the beauty would be if you're an amateur woman, 60 years old, you probably don't have very many competitors, if any. But with the Women's Global event, what we did is take the round ratings and have it like one big competition as well as the local events. So that amateur woman over 60 might have 20 other women in her division, but all over North America, all over the world. 
and she could see how she compared against the other FA60 players. So this idea really caught on, and it's been held every two years, and it should have been held last year, except it had to be postponed due to COVID. So May 8th and 9th is the weekend that is going to be the Women's Global event this year. I'm holding an event along with my co-TD, Victoria Griffiths, at Valley Springs Disc Golf Course. But there are over 100 other women's global events being held in North Carolina, in the U.S., and around the world. So if you're a woman or girl who plays, get on the PDJ website, look for the events on May 8th and 9th, and sign up for your local women's global event. It's it's, it's struck me as a little humorous that you're having it on Mother's Day because usually on Father's Day, what do dads want to do? I want to go play out golf. and play golf. Yeah. Well, now it's an opportunity for moms to say the same thing. I'm going to play disc, disc golf. golf. Yeah. Will, you stay with the kids. I'm going to be gone. Have fun. <laughs> and I think there was – I think there was a – we talked off air about this briefly. You said that it was a deadline to sign up. What is that deadline? Depends on your local event. For my event, there's a deadline if you want to get the official merchandise in your player's package. And that's April 1st, so that's coming up on Thursday. Okay, but they can sign up regardless? But you can sign right up until almost the day of. Okay, all right. Or or until the tournament fills. So there will be a cap of 90 women. Okay. And we're already at 64, so we're doing really well. That's amazing. Yeah, that'll that'll fill up quickly. I know the... Capital Area Disc Golf League had their first spring singles this past Thursday, and there were 136 players, which was by far and away their largest. And that was pretty incredible. Yeah, that's uh, a lot to get to be a part of that. But I, one of the things you mentioned, COVID nineteen had an impact on planned tournaments. But one thing that I noticed is that the local courses are packed with people playing disc golf every single day, even through the winter. And I think that this is one of the few sports that you could do and be socially distanced at the same time appropriately. And I think you're going to find that the the impact of COVID on disc golf is actually that it has substantially increased its popularity and the amount of people playing. Do do you see that from your perspective? That, that is a fact. Everywhere in the world, people have been flocking to disc golf courses. Mm-hmm. The PDGA had, has increased the number of members significantly over last year. Even when every tournament was shut down, we were getting people applying to be new PDGA members. Mm. That's awesome. Even during that period. And normally we, we have 15% growth in members Last year we had twenty. Oh, sorry, thirty percent growth. Wow. wow! So, what's the total amount of PDGA members? Do you know? Oh gosh, I should have that fact at my fingertips. I? <laughs> I just don't I mean, think I'll be able to find that. You doubled your normal. There's more than five thousand women. Well, that's I know nice. that. Well, that's awesome. And and women comprise seven percent of members. So. Oh, wow. We can probably do a little bit of math here. I know they were in some of the fellows on my on my card on Thursday were up in the hundred and eighty thousand in numbers, and I got my PDGA card fifteen years ago Oof. in two thousand six, and I was two eight nine two zero. So that's a 
tremendous amount of growth in 15 years, but I would imagine most of that came, you know, in the last five years. Yeah. What was the number you came up with? Absolutely. Yeah. Around 70,000. Okay. That's a fair amount. And if you grew double what you thought you were going to grow, that's hopefully that trend continues. But, but to get to that critical mass you were talking about earlier, where you get that the major sponsor or the, the, live televised event coverage on air, not just streaming, you would have to get to millions, but that's not necessarily millions of PDGA members. You're talking about millions of people with interest in disc golf, either watching it or playing it. But most people that play, they don't sign up to get a PDGA card. They don't even sign up to play in their or or be part of their local disc golf club. Mm -hmm. They're just going out there and throwing Frisbees in the trees. It's true. Absolutely. So there's recreational players that will go out a couple times a year. You'll have more serious recreational players who'll come every month. Then you start to get to people who are club members. They play in their local club, their local league. They don't want to do anything more than that. And then you get your tournament players, and then you get your serious tournament players and professional touring pros. So there's a lot of different levels to join the sport at. I do hope, though, that that more people are seeing the value of supporting the PDGA because that supports not just things we know about the rules and standards, but it also supports programs like bringing disc golf to children. We've got a full-time PDGA member, Des Redding, and her job is to develop school curricula, to provide schools with information about disc golf, to promote disc golf for children, and to really stimulate children getting involved with disc golf at you know a young age and being aware of the sport. So there's a lot of stuff that the PDGA does. It's not just about getting 10 bucks off your tournament entry fee. <laughs> right. Yeah. Speaking from a not a very entry-level player, I had a lot of fun. I'll go back out and do it again. And so I can't promise that I'll play in any tournaments or get my PDGA card, but I can tell you, I, I like it. And I, if it was on TV, I'd watch it. Yeah. So I will well, say that. So one last question before we wrap up, because we want to be respectful of your time. Mm-hmm. Where is it that you see the future of disc golf going? And what is it that you hope it becomes over the next, let's say, five or ten years? One thing that I hope is that it retains this friendly inclusiveness that we were talking about earlier. You're a newbie on the course, people approach you, give you tips on playing, ask you to join with them. I hope we retain that because that's really where the magic of the sport is. The other thing I hope we retain is that it welcomes people who are not necessarily natural athletes. And I think that is one of the the beauties of the sport is you can have a really great time playing even if you're not a self-professed athletic type. But there's enough athleticism in it that it gives you a challenge and enough camaraderie that you can just take it as a game. Mm. So I think it's got a wide appeal. There's no doubt that the professional ranks are going to continue to grow the Disc golf media producers have found that their product is being taken up by more and more people. The Disc Golf Network, for example, that airs the Disc Golf Pro Tour and National Tour events is getting more members than ever. People are watching Disc Golf in larger numbers. That's going to continue. 
is it going to be on mainstream TV? Well, I don't know because I'm not quite sure where mainstream TV is going. It's true. That's I true. think boutique TV might be the trend of the future. Yep. So I, it's a really positive thing that so many people are enjoying the sport through COVID and finding it's really accessible and mm. friendly. And it's a great use of our lands where you don't need to, for example, chop down all the trees yeah. to make a soccer field. It can still be very environmentally green, even though there's a certain amount of tree removal. The birds can still be in the trees. You can still have the flora and fauna that don't need to be destroyed to make a recreational facility. So it's a sport that has so many benefits. The cardiovascular effect, when you play it, there's countless stories of people losing weight, getting healthier, just because they become addicted to disc golf. Yeah. I'll, I can take care of kicking those birds out of the trees for you guys because uh, <laughs> that's my specialty on the disc golf course. I, I don't I don't know if you've noticed the state of the trees anywhere near a fairway on a disc golf course, but you're not the only one hitting them. I can right. guarantee you that they're, much, my friend. They're very barkless on the facing. So, uh, Elaine, where can uh, – twofold question. Where can people find you on social media or websites? And more importantly, how can they sign up for this global event? Is there a website? Is there a social media push going on? What can we look for here? Okay, so you can find me on Facebook, Elaine King Pro Disc Golf. Okay. And if you're a woman or a girl and you're interested in playing in the women's global event, the best thing you can do is go to the PDGA website. So that's PDGA.com. And you go to the events tab and you get yourself to May and look on the May 8th to 9th weekend. And there's a listing of more than 100 events that are highlighted in pink. Okay. And those oh, wow. are women's global events. Sweet. And look for the one in the areas closest to you. We'll make sure we go ahead and put a link to that Absolutely. in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, so folks who are listening can go ahead and register for those tournaments in time. Do you have to be a PDGA member to be in these tournaments? No, you okay. do not. PDGA know. fee is waived for women, so it's just any skill level. Okay. This is the tournament for you. Any That's pretty skill awesome. level. Just come yeah. on and I, I was, join in, and we're going to play two rounds of golf and have fun. I was reading this morning that there was even a novice division, so if you've never thrown a disc before and you want to learn, wouldn't be a bad place to do it. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Elaine. We really appreciate you being here. This, this was a amazing. lot of fun. And we're looking forward to getting to play that round with you yes. so we can put some of that footage on YouTube with the interview. Yeah, I just want to, I want to learn. I want to learn. I'm a very competitive, so I want to <laughs> beat this guy at some point. That's not going to happen. <laughs> we can absolutely get you to beat him. Thank, <laughs> thanks, Elaine. I appreciate that encouragement because it's not coming from this guy. <laughs> Elaine, again, like Dominic said, we want to thank you so very much for taking your time to come on the show with us and educate us newbies and give a little bit more knowledge to, to the Dominics of the world who know their fair share about the disc golf and the disc golf community. So we want to thank you again very much. It's been my pleasure being here. Yeah. 
All right, Dominic. You, well, uh, I was just going to say, as a reminder to all of our listeners, uh, be sure to go to subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you leave us a five-star review and rating. Better. And if you don't leave us a five-star or something else, we'll shame you publicly by reading your review <laughs> on the air. And also go to our YouTube channel, hit the like and uh, notification button when, when, you, when we post any new content there follow us on all of our social media at j schmo sports and until next time cut to the theme music there it is